Good morning, church. Today we'll continue in our series, David, um, a king after God's own heart. If you please, would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, um, you are in our midst. It is our desire, Father, to hear your voice today. It is by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit that we will be able to receive what you have in store. And it is your grace, the one that sustains us. We're thankful for the great work of the Messiah. We're thankful for the power of his blood, which has redeemed us. Please be with us and lead this time in the precious name of Jesus, who conquered death and rose from the dead. Amen. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. The central theme of this hymn is found in the word blood. And the Bible tells us that there is no covering of sin unless blood is spilt. A blood sacrifice is required by Scripture and is centrally tied to the issue of sin. The spilled blood of lambs and rams served as a covering for the guilt and sin of people. The substitutionary death of an innocent one was required since an atonement, that is, a covering for sin, was to be made through the blood. Leviticus 17, verse 11, says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This, this text reveals to us that life was contained in the blood. Directly connected to the treatment of blood was also the role of the priest in Israel. So much of the job of a priest was connected to the dealing of blood through the handling of sacrifices that, in essence, there were butchers among the people. But their role was not limited to the handling of blood. As priests, they also consulted the Lord on behalf of the people. They carefully examined and identified issues in the people, whether it may be due to illnesses or sicknesses. The priest also consulted and found out solutions in Scripture, and they were the conduits to consult with God. The most important task of the priest was to mediate atonement, covering. Atonement was required for the removal of the corporate guilt and sin from the nation. The Day of Atonement, found in Leviticus 16, was the main day to be able to accomplish this. According to the Torah, the law 
Only the Levites who were physical descendants of Aaron could be priests. However, a special case is found with David in the scriptures. David often serves as a type of the coming Messiah. He is considered a priestly king. But how could a king be a priest? Old Testament theologian Michael L. Brown writes, according to the interpretation of the whole of Psalm 110, this psalm was spoken by David about the Messiah. Thus, the opening words, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet, are understood. These words are understood to be the words of David, declaring God's promise to the Messiah, David's Lord. And it is the royal Messiah who is designated a priest forever, according to Melchizedek, the first priest king mentioned in the scriptures. It is interesting to note that David did perform also priestly functions, such as offering sacrifices. We find this in 2 Samuel 24, 25, a function that was a divine service, which only the priests would perform. Well, according to 2 Samuel 8, 18, even David's sons were considered to be priests. Thus, David, the biblical prototype of the Messiah, was a priestly king. And today, this text will show us a glimpse of some of the priestly functions that David assumed throughout the narrative. It's important to note at this point that what we see in this chapter today does not follow the previous chapters chronologically. It's often considered to be an appendix added at the very end of the book of 2 Samuel. With that being said, let us begin with the first glimpse of David's priestly role as contained in this chapter. Number one, the priest consults with the Lord on behalf of the people. Verse one says, the priest consults, says, now there was a famine on the days of David for three years, year after year. So David saw the face of the Lord. Robert Barron writes, the phrase David sought the presence of Yahweh or the face of the Lord conveys a seeking out of the will of Yahweh, most likely through the inquiring of an oracle. The inquiring of an oracle from God was the task of a priest, and it required the usage of the ephod, an outer garment which was supposed to uh, be worn only by the priest and contain 12 precious stones in the breastplate that rest upon it, with, which resembled the 12 tribes of Israel. But it also had a compartment where two special st stones were kept, the Urim and the Tumim. Through these stones, priests could consult the will of God. In two separate occasions in the life of David, he asks for the ephod to be brought to him so that he may consult with the Lord. He assumes thereby a priestly role every time he did it. In 1 Samuel 23, David is fleeing from, uh, to the city of Keilah and Saul is coming to hunt for his life. And he consults with the Lord. He asks the priest to bring the ephod Consults with the Lord, and he asks the Lord, Will Saul come 
to get me here. And the Lord says, he will come. Will the people of Keilah deliver me unto him? And the Lord says, they will. So what does David do? He leaves before Saul appears. We find another occasion when uh, after the Amalekites had raided the Negev and burned Siklag and taken all the women and children away captive, that David finds himself also under great distress. His children, the wives of his men, have been taken away. The men are desperate. It says in the Bible that they were so desperate they wept until they could not weep any longer. And they start to plot to stone David, to think about stoning him out of their grief and their pain. David consults with the priest, and he asks the priest to bring the ephod, and he himself, as a priest, consults with the Lord. Today, you and I have an even better way to inquire of the Lord, a better way than that of using, that of using the urim and the tumim. If you have been sealed with the Spirit of God, church, by virtue of the faith that you have placed in Jesus and by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you and I have access to the one who is able to bring complete guidance into our life. In John chapter 14, verse 16 through 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He will be with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept because it does not know him or see him. But you will know him because he resides in you and is with you. The advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. If you have been born again from above, your status before God is now that of a royal priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own, so that you may proclaim his virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Another of the glimpses that we find in this text regarding David's priestly role is that to follow the priests identifies the sin and provides the required solution verse 1 continues the lord replied it is because of saul and his bloody house his bloody house that he put because he put the gibeonites to death david's inquiry before the lord leads him to understand the sin and to find out the cause bringing devastation on the land famine what is the sin cause? The violation of a solemn oath. A nation had made, the nation had made an oath with the Gibeonites almost 300 years before. We find this account in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites, knowing that the Israelites had come to the land and had defeated many other nations during their settlement in the land, they were fearful and they planned to bring an envoy of people to reach the Israelites, and they pretended to have been traveling for a long time. They put all clothing over themselves, and they came to the Israelites and begged of them to enter into a covenant, an oath, that they would not attack them, that their lives will be spared 
and the Israelites entered into this covenant. The whole of the nation. Joshua does it, and all of the leaders of Israel entered into that covenant before the Lord. Fast forward 300 years, and we find Saul, the leader of the nation, breaking that oath, an oath that obligated the whole nation. Saul tried to obliterate the Gibeonites, to destroy them completely. This was mass murder. Saul's actions were a national crime since the national covenant was broken. The people were guilty in that they permitted their king to act in a lawless manner. A murder left unpunished polluted the land and was affecting the land with sin. The text in Numbers 35-33 reads, If you, you are not to pollute the land in which you are, blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land polluted by bloodshed except by the blood of the one who sheds it. You are not to defile the land where you live, where I dwell, says the Lord, for I dwell among the sons of Israel. The famine was the result of the defilement of the land. Numbers 35, 33 is a text that shows a unique link between the sin of murder and the suffering of the land. And it shows us that in this case, the willful homicide, the murder that Saul attempted was the one action that caused the defilement. In our priestly role, church, as children of God, we're called to identify sin in our lives and seek the solution as well. We're even called to identify sins in the lives of those that are with us and encourage them to seek after the Lord and find thereby solution to exhort our brothers to live holy lives. We're called to live in godliness ourselves. This is accomplished by dependency upon the precious Spirit of God and by leaning on each other as the body of Christ so that we may support, pray, and exhort one another. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, Brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual restore such person in a spirit of gentleness. Pay close attention to yourselves so that you are not tempted to carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is our calling, church family. We are to keep each other accountable and seek the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let us use our freedom with wisdom and let's be watchful on how we walk. Protect your marriages. Protect the environment of your home. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge in the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Live with the seal of Christ and depend upon the power of the Spirit and you will live in victory. The third priestly glimpse that we find in the life of David is this. The priest mediates atonement for those bearing guilt at the risk of losing his own life. Verse 2 and 3 says, So the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites 
were not the sons of Israel, but a remnant of the Amorites. However, the sons of Israel had sworn a covenant with them, yet Saul had tried to eradicate them in, this, in his seal for Israel and Judah. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How may I make atonement so that you would bless the inheritance of the Lord? Among the things that are confirmed through this text is the scribal explanation that leads us to understand that the Amorites are identified as a people connected with the Gibeonites. That they, the Gibeonites were not part of the people of Israel, but they themselves lived in the land of Israel. This happened right after the covenant that Joshua made with them. They became servants in the land. Often scholars speculate about this, but they tend to think that the Gibeonites became a people that served among the priests in Israel. They were part of the land. They learned about the law of God. This text confirms also that the entirety of the nation of Israel was subject to the requirements of the oath, the peace treaty that the sons of Israel had sworn in the covenant they entered into before the Lord. The scribal note also says Saul had tried to eradicate the Gibeonites in his seal for Israel. This text shows that David calls the Gibeonites and he speaks to them. He summons them. He's ready to assume responsibility as a leader and king of Israel. He wants the nation to come out from under the curse of defilement. According to Numbers 35, he wants to see the crops alive again. David wants to see the harvest that would bring relief from the pain and the suffering that the nation of Israel was enduring for three years. So David was ready to pay the high price required to make atonement for the land and for the people. And in, in a very priestly manner, David said, how, how may I make atonement for, for the people of the inheritance of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his household, nor it is our right to put any of the men of Israel to death. Whatever you say, we will do, David said. Then they said to the king, the men who consumed us and plotted against us to annihilate us from the remaining of the people of Israel, let seven of his men be given to us and we will hang them before the Lord at Gibeath of Saul. The terms of the atonement are made specific. The Gibeonites tell the king that it's not a matter of monetary restitution. They identify Saul as the perpetrator of the crime against them, and they mention also his household as it carries the shared guilt and responsibility over the murders. Perhaps the Gibeonites had in mind the text of Numbers 35, after all, they lived as foreigners in the land of Israel, and the Torah, the law, was the law of the land. Some scholars even speculate about this, and they think that this is, in fact, the case because they served among the priests, and during that time, they would have clung to the law 
to find out what was the right answer concerning their grievances and their pain, what was to be required. They knew that atonement was made only by the taking of life from the guilty perpetrator, and this responsibility was in this case shared by their household or his household. The Gibeonites knew that Saul was dead, and so they requested for his descendants to be handed over. It is important to remember at this point that Saul's actions were a national crime since the national covenant was broken. The people were guilty in that they permitted their king to act in a lawless manner. Murder unpunished. Murder unpunished polluted the land. A famine was the consequence. And now the Gibeonites are providing the terms of the required atonement. The descendants of the murdering perpetrator would substitute with their death since Saul was already dead. Only in this way the land of Israel could come from under the defilement of the curse that Numbers 35 had specified. And the text continues, I will give them over, said the king. Perhaps he did this with pain in his heart. I will give them other. He knew that atonement have to be, had to be made. He knew that otherwise the land would not receive water and the crops will not return and the people of Israel will continue in pain, perhaps with a starvation and deaths among his own people. He knew that a high price had to be made. It says in verse 7, Now the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, because the Lord's, the Lord's oath that he had made with Jonathan. Verse 8, But the, the king took the, the two sons of Rizpah, the concubine of Saul, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul. Their names were Armoni and Mephibosheth also. He also took the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, son of Berzali, the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. So they hanged them on the hill before the Lord, so that all of the seven, it says there, fell together. They died together. It is interesting that it says that he gave them over. This is the price of the atonement, David said, a price that is painful for my nation. It is painful for me, but is required. He handed them over, and they took them, and they hanged them. It says there, before the Lord. The Lord knew the terms specified in Numbers 35. The Lord knew that atonement from the blood had to be made so that defilement would end. They were put to death during the days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Kevin Howard wrote this celebration, the barley harvest, corresponds to the Feast of First Fruits, which marked the beginning of a cereal grain harvest in Israel. For the first fruits, a sheaf of barley was harvested and brought to the temple as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord for the harvest to come. 
This was a representation, a representative for the barley harvest as a whole and served as a pledge, as a guarantee that the remainder of the harvest would be realized in the days that would follow. It's so interesting that this took place during this time. Atonement was being made, an offering was being made that cost the pain of Israel and was given as compensation, as covering because of the sin of Saul. But it was serving just like in the first fruit celebration as a pledge that God will put an end to the defilement that was affecting the land and bringing suffering to the people of Israel. David, at this point, in what would resemble a priestly role, he mediates to accomplish atonement for the sin affecting the nation. And certainly in doing so, he puts his life to risk by likely bringing upon himself the hatred of many among the Solites, the descendants of Saul. A proof of this hatred, it's found in the account described in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 7 to 8, an account that likely came after the events of this chapter, since this chapter does not follow chronologically from the previous one. If you remember, while David was leaving Israel because of the uprising from his son, a man by the name of Shimei, the son of Gera, came out to curse him, to throw stones at him, and call out, yelling, saying, Get out, get out, you men of bloodshed. The Lord has returned on you all of the blood of Saul's house, in whose place you have reigned, because you are a man of bloodshed. This is very likely happening right after this account. One of the men of the house of Saul is placing blame on David. So it is only natural to come to understand that many of the Benjamites perhaps harbored anger with David. However, the text is clear. The text shows that the Gibeonites were the ones requiring the descendants of Saul to be handed over. It was not David's idea. And we also know that the Torah required the death of the guilty perpetrator according to Numbers 35-33. Some scholars speculate, saying that those in the list, the seven of them, perhaps had been part of the raids murdering many of the Gibeonites. But we cannot know this with certainty. What we do know is that atonement was demanded, the shedding of blood needed to take place. And we know that an unmeasurable price is paid for covering, for the covering of the sin of the people. Another glimpse of the priestly role assumed by David through these events is the following. A priest shows compassion and he intercedes for the people. Verses 10 through 14, Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it on the rock for herself from the beginning of the harvest until the rain poured on them from the sky. She did not let the birds of the sky rest on them, neither by day nor by night, nor did she allow beasts to defile or touch the bodies during the night. Saul's concubine, Rispa, is mourning the death 
of her two sons. One can only imagine the pain that she felt as a mother. My mom's visiting today. She's sitting in the back. Nothing grieves me more than when I see her in pain. I can only imagine how David was moved to compassion tremendously as, she, as he learned what Rizpah was doing. Sackcloth is often worn by people who are in mourning. Yet in this case, sackcloth is spread over a rock. James E. Smith writes, The mother of two of the executed men could not give the corpses, the corpses of her son's proper burial without violating the royal edict. So she did the next best thing that she could do. She spread out sackcloth on a rock and sat down near the decaying bodies of the seven men among which were her two sons. She made sure that neither the birds by day nor the beasts by night would touch the bodies. This mother in mourning, living through her daily pain, kept faithful watch until the famine ended and the rains fell. Some even speculate by saying that she waited throughout the summer because the barley harvest is at the beginning of the spring between March and April. And the early rains in Israel come during June. The latter rains come in August. We do know that by the time the bodies were sought for removal and for burial, by the end of this time, skeletons were actually recovered and not complete bodies. Imagine the pain of this mother. But even with all that was affecting her emotionally, she did not give up. She honored her sons in preserving the bodies from the attacks of the beast. She did this out of love for her sons. So David, in a priestly manner, had compassion, and he interceded on behalf of the Solites. And in doing so, he likely brings an end to the speculations in the minds of many of the Solites who had perhaps initially thought that the death penalty had come from his own desire and heart. He intercedes and mediates with kindness on the descendants of Saul. Rizpah was one of them, and, she, and he showed compassion for her. The text reads in verse 11, David was told that Rizpah's, Rizpah, the daughter of Aia, the concubine of Saul, what she had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead. This men, people of Israel, had actually recovered the bodies who, after they had died in, in a battle with the Philistines, the bodies were exposed, and these men risked their lives, took their bodies to the region in Habesh Gilead and buried them there. But David goes the extra mile during this time out of compassion for Rizpah and the Solites. He takes the bodies from that region, and he brings them, and he buries them in the house of Saul's, in the household in the area where Saul's father Kish 
lived. It says in verse 12, So David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Gabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Beth Shean, where the Philistines had hanged them on that day. In verse 13, David had the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan brought up there, and they gathered the bones of those who were also hanged. He put them together, and then out of compassion he buried them in the country of Benjamin so that the Benjamites, the Solites, will have consolation and a proper burial for their kin. They did all of this as the king, the king commanded. This text shows that David was deeply moved by the dedication of Rizpah. So he issued these two commands. First, he ordered the bones of Saul, and now he is acting with kindness, showing love as much as he's able to show. This was certainly a gesture of kindness. He honored this man. And he tried to touch and do however we could to bring remedy as much as he was able to do to a pain that was excruciating. He knew that he couldn't do it completely, but he acted as a compassionate priestly king. Only after these men had been given the proper burial and after David proactively showed mercy and compassion, then God was moved, and the famine ended. The text ends in this way in verse 14. Afterward, God was moved by the prayer of the land. Atonement covering for the sin that polluted the land was accepted. The rains were restored. A heavy price was being paid, a price that was unmeasurable, a price that paid for the covering of sin. Church, the covering and the atonement of our Savior is unmeasurable, is high. We cannot fathom the, the price that was being paid when the Lord was hanging on the cross on our behalf. He carried our guilt away from us. He placed upon himself the sins of us all. He became a guilt offering on our behalf. He removed by his own suffering the persistent consequences of our past sins. This is what we find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, but how much more will the blood of Messiah, Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, that is, as an atonement, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We're called to serve the living God. We're called to follow after him, to realize that that heavy price that he paid, that unmeasurable price for the covering of our sins, should keep us in an attitude of gratitude daily for what he did for us cannot be measured. His love for us goes beyond what we can ever come to understand. Would you join me in singing two stanzas? 
What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen.